Chapter 8 Limitation of Population In the past chapters, I have discussed some of the basic qualities of man, which show that in general he behaves and will continue to behave like a wild animal. Consequently, he will obey the law of nature by multiplying up to the limit of subsistence, and there will therefore normally be a marginal group of humanity living and dying at starvation level. This is the old threat of Malthus, and there are many people at the present time who are very conscious of it. But whereas Malthus could only express the hope that man would learn voluntarily to restrain himself from multiplying up to the limit, it has been found since then that in some countries, and those among the most prosperous, the populations are spontaneously becoming stationary or even decreasing. If then, it is argued, some countries have created conditions which automatically solve the problem of overpopulation. Why should not these same conditions produce the same results in all countries, and then we could all be comfortable together? I am going to maintain that, though such limitations of population may recur locally from time to time, the condition is essentially an unstable one and contains the seeds of its own construction. Any country which limits its population becomes thereby less numerous than one which refuses to do so, and so the first will be sooner or later crowded out of existence by the second. And again, the stationary population is avoiding the full blast of natural competition, and following a universal biological law, it will gradually degenerate. It is impossible to believe that a degenerating small population can survive in the long run in a strongly competitive world, or that it can have the force to compel the rest of the world to degenerate with it. The present spontaneous decline in fertility affects many of the most prosperous countries, and it is a phenomenon that was hardly foreseen even 50 years ago. Man has not any very strong procreative instincts in the uncivilized state that did not matter, since his very strong sexual instincts suffice to maintain the race. But our present economy is so organized that there are great handicaps against large families, and many compensations for those who are either intentionally or unintentionally sterile. In past periods of high prosperity, there was often a similar state of affairs, but the development of easy methods of birth control is a new factor of great importance which seems to have upset the balance by making it very easy to be childless or to have such a small family that the population is not maintained. I believe it is disputed how important the various contributory causes may be, but it is indisputable 
that a considerable fraction of the population find it both easy and convenient to contribute less than their share to the next generation, and this fraction is especially the one enjoying the highest prosperity. It is convenient to have a short phrase to describe this state of affairs in which prosperity produces childlessness, and I shall characterize it by saying that the prospect of owning a motor car is a sufficient bribe to sterilize most people. I do not apologize for calling it sterility, for though the term is often used to imply a physical incapacity that is held in contempt, it is, biologically speaking, immaterial whether the incapacity is forced or voluntary. In my phrase, the motor car is, of course, only metaphorical as a symbol of the sort of level of prosperity that tends to be associated with small families or childlessness. And it is being found that as prosperity spreads downwards in the social scale, so the families tend to become smaller there too. It would be difficult to say which is cause and which effect, for children are an economic disadvantage so that their presence lowers their parents' prospects. And on the other hand, the ease and comfort of existing prosperity discourages the creation of children. To see the consequences of this state of affairs, I shall look more closely at the way things have been going in this country during the past century. In studying the trend of our population, if the study is to be any use at all, it is necessary to adopt some standard of values for the different constituents of the community. There is at present, current in some quarters, an egalitarian trend of opinion which is quite dangerously unsound. It is the type that condemns all eugenic views on principle, presumably because they conflict with a dead level of equality. It tries to prejudice the case in advance by stating that the eugenicist rates the rich higher than the poor without any examination whatever of the very different things that he really does claim. It may therefore be well for me to elaborate the point. In discussions on social policy in which these criticisms are expressed, Lip service is paid to the doctrine that all men are of equal merit, but it is to be noticed that such statements are usually reserved for general argument, and that those who make them pay the most jealous attention to the comparative merits of individuals when it is a question of making an appointment to any important post. It is the man who is believed to be the ablest who is promoted, and this brings to him some increase in reward, which may be a higher salary, or perhaps some other mark of civic recognition, which will be valued by the recipient, and which would also have been desired by his unsuccessful rivals. There is certainly a great deal of injustice in the world, 
in that there are many people whose real ability is never discovered. But it is hard to believe that promotions are more often made wrongly than rightly. So it is surely a justifiable claim that those selected for promotion are rather more likely to have superior qualities than those who were not so selected. Now man, like every other animal, does tend to pass on his natural qualities to his offspring. There is no certainty about it, but there is a somewhat better chance that the sons of the promoted candidate will be abler than those of his unsuccessful rivals, since there will always be need for as many able people as possible the encouragement of the promoted men to have children increases the chance that we shall find them in the next generation. The argument may be pushed further still. There is a good deal of evidence that some men's ability is more intimately incorporated in their heredity than it is for others. Thus, there have been men of preeminent ability risen from the ranks whose descendants have sunk back in a generation or two, whereas there are families where generation after generation goes on producing men of very good ability. Clearly, the probability of producing able men is rather greater in a family that has shown that it can do so over several generations. The argument that the eugenicist rates the well-to-do highly is quite true if it is read in these terms. For the well-to-do are rather more likely than others to possess the quality of hereditary ability through having shown it in several generations. Note also that an opponent of this view does not really upset the argument by maintaining that the wrong people are always promoted. He wants other types to be promoted, presumably, because he admires their qualities more. But then he will surely want those other qualities to be perpetuated through heredity. It is not the eugenic side of the argument that he wants to upset, but the social side. All these matters both of achieving success and of heredity, depend, of course, very much on chance. For very often, the sons of the successful are inferior to those of an unsuccessful rival, but there is no justification for neglecting chances because they are not certainties. After all, the whole world depends very much on chance, and it is the part of the wise speculator to recognize which chances are likely to make the odds most in his favor, and he will take these chances even if they are only slightly more favorable to him. If, then, I may appear to be regarding the actually successful members of society as more valuable than the less successful, it is not because I do not recognize that there are a great many stupid rich people or that there are many of superior merit who have missed. It is because I believe 
that I shall tend to find rather more ability among those some of whose ancestors have proved they possessed it. And in dealing with probabilities, I want to have the chances in my favor as much as I can. Even if the gain in the odds is not very great. In what follows, then, I shall be implying this train of thought. It would be too tedious to have to repeat it all the time. There is one further point to be made. The judgment by success is one between men competing against one another, and so it can only be applied when they belong to the same community. It provides no guide whatever to the respective merits of separate peoples, whether the comparison is made of the whole peoples or of individuals drawn from each at some corresponding level. Consider now the history of Britain since the Industrial Revolution, the large increase of population started in about 1800. And this signifies that the rigor of natural selection began to be eased at that time. There was still, of course, a great deal of infant mortality among all classes, but it was probably a good deal less among the well-to-do, though even theirs would be regarded as quite shocking by modern standards. Many of the poor led lives of oppressed squalor, and no doubt often lived not very far from the starvation level, but they did not actually starve, and anyone who could survive childhood had a nearly equal chance of himself having children, no matter from what rank he came. Any difference there was would still favor the prosperous, though to a less degree than before the Industrial Revolution. The situation had changed radically before the end of the 19th century on account of a variety of causes of which the comparative importance is still in dispute. One was the greater insistence of public opinion on sexual morality, and another, probably the most important of all, was the growth of the practice of birth control. It might more doubtfully also be argued that the spread of comfort and the rise of living standards has provided pleasures to rival those connected with sex, but this is not very convincing, since it is certain that in other countries and at other periods of history, the growth of luxury has had the opposite effect. But whatever the causes, it is indisputable that the more prosperous members of the community are not producing their share of the next generation, so that selection is now operating against the prosperous. As an example, if the list of candidates is examined who are applying for any office of high or even mediocre importance, it will be found that something like nine-tenths of them have either no children or one or two. Of course, if everyone had exactly two children, and both these children married and had exactly two more, the population would be exactly steady. But as things are, it is a fair guess that in each 30 years of a generation, 
this part of our population is reducing itself to something between a half and two-thirds. This signifies that within a century, there will at most be quarter as many people of this type as there are now. There will, of course, be some compensation by the rise from other levels, but, as I have pointed out, to find our hopes on them is to take a worse instead of a better chance. The whole thing is a catastrophe, which it is now almost too late to prevent. If what I have called the bribe of the motor car is what is needed to persuade the world to limit its population, then it is certain that the first countries to accept the bribe are committing suicide. This catastrophe must be a principal factor in the immediate future of our country, and as such, it concerns us more than anything in the distant future. But in this essay, I am concerned with the distant future and not with the immediate troubles of our country. So here, it only plays the part of an example of what happens when a country succeeds in avoiding the Malthusian threat of overpopulation. The tendency of civilized life to sterilize its ablest citizens is by no means confined to this country, but is the experience of nearly all countries which enjoy even a passable degree of prosperity. It is perhaps more marked now than ever before, but it has certainly occurred at other periods of history. For example, the earlier Roman emperors were continually in difficulty because of the extinction of the senatorial families, which were the class whose administrative abilities had been so largely responsible for the creation of the Roman Empire. It would seem that, then as now, it was just those whose type was most needed who were the first to limit their families. Then as now, the prosperity induced by civilization gave not merely a security of life that annulled the effects of natural selection, but it actually went in the opposite direction, in that the less valuable parts of the community became the most efficient in survival. Another example of the consequences of family limitation may be cited, but I do so only very tentatively because I have not been able to gather full information about it. Of the Polynesians, many lived in small, nearly isolated communities on islands, and these succeeded in developing a manner of life which seems to have avoided the harder features of overpopulation. It was done by the sanction of various rituals and by social habits, not all of which we should condemn. But that is no matter. On their first being discovered, they could be held up to the world as having solved the problem of how to live an idyllic life of Arcadian simplicity. But since then, it has been found that Arcadia cannot endure in a cold world. The Polynesians are not in the least inferior to other races in ability or intelligence, but they do not seem capable of competing against them in survival. Thus, in Hawaii, 
After the short span of a century, they are already very much in a minority compared with the newly immigrant Chinese and Japanese. Contrast this with the colonization of Africa, where the effect has usually been a rapid increase in the local population. Furthermore, the Polynesians themselves furnish one striking example to the contrary. When the Maoris came to New Zealand, they could expand into an almost unlimited area, and there was no need to limit population. And the Maoris have most certainly not gone the way of the other Polynesians. Through insufficient knowledge, I can only cite this example of the Polynesians very tentatively, but it does seem to show that a race adapted to limiting its population cannot compete against others which have not been similarly adapted. Those who are most anxious about the Malthusian threat argue that the decrease of population through prosperity is the solution of the population problem. They are unconscious of the degeneration of the race implied by this condition, or perhaps they are willing to accept it as the lesser of two evils. They hope that we can gradually make prosperity worldwide so that as country after country experiences it, each of them in turn will begin to diminish in numbers and finally we can all be comfortable together in an effortless world. It is conceived as an automatic painless process occurring naturally and spontaneously and involving no compulsion anywhere. I shall come later to the long-term instability which will prevent such happenings. But there is also an overwhelming short-term reason to prevent it. There is simply no time for it to come about, because everything happens in the wrong order. What is required is the simultaneous existence of high prosperity social conditions in which the economic disadvantages of parenthood are evident to nearly all classes, and some knowledge of the methods of birth control, only under such conditions will the potential parent weigh the rival pleasures to be derived from a motor car or another child. Such conditions exist in some of the more prosperous countries and affect the more prosperous members of them which may be quite a considerable fraction. In others, even among those possessing a high degree of civilization, the fraction affected is very small, and for the remainder, there is no such inducement to a careful balancing of the advantages. Take the case of India, of some 500 millions it is doubtful if even 1% are at present in the appropriate conditions of prosperity. And it is not 1%, but at least 60% that is needed. For the rest, the population is increasing at a terrifying rate. As to the prospects of higher prosperity, the risks of local famines are already mitigated by good intercommunications all over the country and not very much more can be hoped from this. 
Methods of agriculture can no doubt be improved in many ways, but it would certainly take a long time merely to teach these to such an enormous number of people. And all the time the torrent of procreation continues, itself inevitably decreasing the standards of life. There is, so to speak, simply no time to make the people realize what a pleasant bribe a motor car is, nor, for the matter of that, is it likely that enough motor cars could ever be offered. There are many other parts of the world where the same thing is happening. The colonizations, mainly by the white races, have produced a security of life before unknown with the immediate consequence of large increases of population, and these increases have automatically lowered the standard of life back towards what it had been previously. The first condition needed for spontaneous limitation itself destroys the chance of establishing the other conditions. There is still one point to be considered. I have been arguing that there is no chance of spontaneous limitation coming about because it takes too long, and yet it is even now being actually experienced in some countries. This fact might seem to demolish my argument, but I do not think there is any difficulty in meeting the point. The present era has been unique in that it has combined the wonders of the scientific revolution with the sudden expansion of the white races into vast, almost uninhabited regions. The consequence has been that for two or three generations, the Malthusian threat did really disappear. In spite of the secure conditions, man could not breed fast enough to catch up with the extending agriculture, and so the other conditions for spontaneous limitation could come into play. Before the first one, the condition of security had killed the chance of them. It would seem unlikely that similar conditions can arise again in world history, so that in estimating future possibilities, there is little prospect that the Malthusian threat will again be overcome spontaneously in this way. In considering the possibility of the spontaneous limitation of populations, I have been regarding the subject in the manner prevalent as arising from conditions like those we are experiencing here and now. But it must not be overlooked that there have been many epochs in the past, and perhaps there are cases in the present too where children were not wanted, and where a more direct solution was found through infanticide. It was usually female infanticide that was practiced. This was presumably because the male was more valuable economically as a soldier or workman, but it was also more effective in limiting the increase in later generations. Infanticide is repugnant to all our present systems of thought, and it is hard for us to conceive the state of mind of those who practice it, and so to estimate how it actually works out. It would seem rather likely that it would operate on a lower social level than does our pre present limitation, 
because the decision to destroy a newborn child must involve a great emotional crisis so that it is not likely to be undertaken except in extreme conditions. It will not be the hope of a motor car, but the pangs of hunger that will bring it about. This form of limitation will hardly come into play in conditions of prosperity, and so it cannot be considered any help in maintaining prosperity. I have already suggested that the voluntary limitation of populations is an unstable process, whereas any process that is to come about spontaneously has simply got to be a stable process. Here I use the term stability in its technical sense, which hardly differs from the popular sense, though it is a little more precise. Stability roughly signifies that if the system under consideration gets a little above its average level, by that very fact, a force comes into play to pull it back, while if it falls below, a force is evoked to rise it again. In this sense, the voluntary limitation of populations is evidently an unstable process, but the matter is so important that it may be well to illustrate it by example. Something of the kind is being already experienced in parts of France, where the peasant population is not maintaining its numbers. But I do not want to be tied to demographic details which are not very accurately known or understood, and the argument is quite strong enough for it to be put in more general terms. The peasants of Province A are not reproducing themselves, with the results that the villages are only partly inhabited and that part of the land has gone out of cultivation. Province B, on the other hand, has an excess of population, and the land hunger of the bees will drive them into taking over the deserted houses and into cultivating the neglected land, even though it will have been the poorest land that had gone out of cultivation. Some departments of France have in fact already been partly repeopled in this way from Italy. Now if the immigrants be retain their own customs, they will continue to increase in numbers in their new settlements, and in a few generations the province A will be fully populated, but now chiefly by bees. But it may be that, in their new surrounding, the bees will feel the influences which led the A's to decrease, so that they too will start to decrease, and again the villages will be deserted and land will go out of cultivation. If this happens, there will be a fresh influx of bees, unless perhaps the province B has by now got itself into a state where its own population is decreasing. In that case, there will be a new immigration from a province C, which has an excess population. If the C's go the same way after immigration, then D's will come in, and so the process will go on with a succession of immigrants, each of which may later fade out by experiencing the same decrease. But at some stage, one set of immigrants will come in who decline to decrease, 
and then the province A will experience overpopulation. Thus the state of underpopulation, in the end, inevitably cures itself. In a different sense, so does the state of overpopulation, for the overpopulation will inevitably reduce itself to a condition of exactly full population, either by emigration or by the starvation of the surplus. The only condition under which the final state of A would not be one of full population would be that there should be no single race on the whole face of the earth that was not stationary or decreasing. If there was a single one that resisted the bribe of the motor car, that race would people the earth, and this it would do, whether its motive was high principle or some creed or simply pure stupidity. It is in this sense that I say that the avoidance of the Malthusian threat of overpopulation is bound to be an unstable process. I have already shown the short-term difficulties which seem to make it sure that no spontaneous process will avoid the menace of overpopulation. It is po possible that the statesmen of all countries, perceiving these dangers, should combine together to make and enforce a worldwide policy of limitation? It would have to be a worldwide, because if any nation were recalcitrant, its population would increase relative to the rest, so that sooner or later it would dominate the others. That the prospects of such a worldwide policy are not good is witnessed by the total failure hitherto achieved in the far easier problem of military disarmament. How would the nation settle the respective numbers admissible for their populations? The only principle that would have a chance of acceptance would be to base the numbers on existing populations, and then the question arises why one particular set of proportions between the various countries should be frozen constant for all time, since the aim of the policy is to retain worldwide prosperity, every single country would be faced with the problem of taking care of its own limitation, and, as has been seen, this would not come about spontaneously. Even if a government could devise an effective method it would be an odious task for the rulers to have to enforce it. And there can be no doubt they would often evade doing so. With the best of good will, it would be hard to enforce the limitation because of the gradualness of the increase, for the rulers could always excuse themselves by the argument that the slight illegal increase of this year was accidental and would next year be compensated by a corresponding decrease so that action might be postponed and sometimes it would be postponed too long. It is clear from all this that the world policy would need to be supported by international sanctions and the only ultimate sanction must be war. Present methods of warfare would not be nearly murderous enough to reduce population seriously. 
and even so, they would take a nearly equal toll of victims from the unoffending nations. So after the war, the question would arise of how to reduce the excess population of the offending nation. It is not possible to be humane in this, but the most humane method would seem to be infanticide, together with the sterilization of a fraction of the adult population. Such sterilization could now be done without the brutal methods practiced in the past, but it would certainly be vehemently resisted. I have dwelt on these details, perhaps at unnecessary length, not because I believe they will ever happen, but in order to show that this kind of enforcement, which is the only obvious one, would lead to a condition of strife, jealousy, and disorder, which is precisely the condition that it was designed to avoid. The fundamental instability of population numbers cannot be checked by man-made laws, and even if it were successfully done for a few years, there is no chance of the system working century after century. Even worse difficulties, however, would arise than those I have so far contemplated. I have been assuming that the policy of limitation was accepted by the majority on board on broad national grounds. But it is quite certain that in a very short time it would encounter fanatical opposition. Even though the procreative instinct has not the violence of the sexual instinct, yet it is an emotion possessed by many people, and as such, it will be particularly liable to get incorporated in creeds. There are already creeds that maintain the wrongfulness of birth control, though there is at present no very strong emotion associated with them. But if there were to be any enforcement of birth control by authority, it is certain that many new creeds would spring up which would regard the practice as sinful, and the tenet would be held with an enthusiasm not to be overcome by the efforts of rational persuasion. There are many creeds which we hold to be unwise, which we could admit and leave alone, because their effects are largely, are mainly to damage their believers. This could not be one of them, since the believers would automatically gain an undue share of the next generation. Persecution would be the only recourse against such a creed, and the massacre of the innocents or the blood of the martyrs would water the seed of faith. It is not, of course, true, as is sometimes maintained by religious devotees, that persecution always fails to extinguish a faith. For example, the Arian heresy was much persecuted by the Orthodox Church, and there are no Arians now, but there is no doubt that persecution is a great encourager, and it is fairly sure that not all such creeds would be extinguished. Once again, the effort to produce comfortable prosperity would call for a brutality that is just the kind of thing it is trying to avoid. It is not only the creation of creeds that may come into play to prevent the artificial limitation of populations. 
In the very long run, a deeper cause will arise to prevent it. Through natural selection, animals acquire heritable qualities which fit them to survive. But nature works in a very untidy way to achieve its ends, accepting any method, no matter how indirect it may appear to be, so long as it is effective in producing the result. Man has strong sexual instincts and strong parental instincts, but the procreative instinct, which would make him feel the direct want of a child, is much weaker. This did not matter so long as the sexual instinct would ensure the birth of children, but now it is no longer doing so. Nature's untidy method has been defeated by the ingenuity of man. There will be a revenge. Though the procreative instinct is comparatively weak, it is present in many people, and it is these people who will have larger families than the rest. By the very fact they will hand on the instinct to a greater fraction of the population in the next generation. The process of building a new instinct into the species will certainly be a slower one than the operation of any creed, but it has a permanence possessed by no creed that an instinct is a very much more powerful thing than any creed may be seen from the sexual instinct there are many creeds which place the greatest importance on the virtue of chastity, but their prohibitions are seldom effective against the instinct. There is no need for the procreative instinct to become even remotely as strong as the sexual instinct, for it to defeat any opposing creed that favors limitation of populations, and so to perpetuate the overpopulation of the world. Once this stage is reached, nature will have taken its revenge, and there will be little tendency for this instinct to increase further. It is very much of a guess how long such a change will take, but it should be far less than the million years of the change of a species. Some analogous considerations, which I shall develop in the next chapter, suggest it might be something like 10,000 years. After all, for one thing, no very great increase is needed in an already existing instinct, and for another, the effect on population from it is so very direct. To conclude the chapter, I return to the narrow, narrower question of the tendency of civilization to eliminate its ablest people. This has happened in the past and is certainly happening now. And if it is always to happen, it signifies a recurrent degeneration of all civilizations only to be renewed by the incursion of, our, of barbarians who have not suffered similarly. If any civilized country could overcome this effect so that it alone retained both its ability and its civilization, it would certainly become the leading nation of the world. Man is a wild animal and cannot accomplish this by using the methods of the animal breeder, but may he not be able to devise something 
that would go beyond the long, drawn-out, automatic process of natural selection? I think he can. A cruder and simpler method must be used than the animal breeders. Something might be accomplished on the line of what is called unconscious selection in the origin of species. Unconscious selection signifies that the farmer, who has no intention whatever of improving his herd, will naturally select his best and not his worst animals to breed from, and in consequence he will find that in fact he does improve the herd. As I have pointed out, we are all the time assessing the rival merits of individuals for promotion. They are each chosen for some special purpose, but like the unconscious selection of the farmer, the choice does mark the promoted person as being superior to the average. Any country that could devise a method whereby the promoted were strongly encouraged to have more children than the rest would find itself soon excelling in the world. It would only be a rough and ready method with many defects, for example, from the point of view of heredity, heredity women are as important as men, but it would not so often be easy to take their qualities into account. Furthermore, the method would be extremely subject to fashions, in which it would resemble the animal breeder's method, for at one time greatest value would be given to the arts, at another to military skill, and at another to administrative ability, and so on. However, Ability is not usually a very specialized quality, and the effect would be to preserve high ability in general and thereby to increase it. Since the abler people would be contributing more instead of less than their share to the next generation. A nation might consciously adopt such a policy or it might be that an economic policy adopted for quite other reasons should have this unintended result. Whatever way it came about, if it could last for even a few generations, the effect would begin to show. But humanity is capricious and subject to the passions of the immediate present, and it is hardly likely that any country whether democracy or autocracy would follow such a policy long enough for it to really tell. The best hope for it to endure would be that it should become attached to a creed, and it would not matter very much whether the creed was reasonable or unreasonable, provided that it produced the effect, either ancestor worship or a belief in the sinfulness of birth control would at least place the promoted on an equality with the unpromoted, and with their superior ability this would give them the advantage, but since the matter concerns the more intelligent, a reasonable creed would have a better appeal than a mere superstition. Such a creed might be one which inculcated in those who were promoted 
the duty of having more children than their fellows as an act benefiting the human race. The prospect of such a creed arising does not seem very hopeful, but if, by its means, any country can even partly solve the problem, it will lead the world, and it will be doing so through the method of unconscious selection. End of chapter 8